We are continuing on forgiveness. Last week, I intentionally disrupted a lot. If you were here last week, you know that last week was a disruptive sermon. It was intentional, and the hope is over these next couple weeks that we can pick up the pieces. Um, got a few folks in the congregation who are helping me with some feedback, so I'm trying to make sure that as, we, as the sermon comes out that any questions that we raise, we actually address those questions. So what we're doing today is we're going to go higher. So last week was very micro, so it was in our face, very personal. This week we're going very macro, and next week we'll come back. So once we get this macro understanding, next week we're coming back to a micro understanding. That'll make some sense here in just a little bit. So First uh, Peter chapter 2. Verse 18 is where we'll start. We'll read through verse 25. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only to those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That's a big part of this. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Christ as example, not Christ as exception. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So basically he's alluding to this Old Testament passage trying to say there was no reason that guilt was cast on him, that accusation was cast on him. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's important. He did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I want to read to you a confession from the early church. Um, and this is not as early as 1st and 2nd century. This is going to be around 12 to 1400-ish is when this was. So here's what they said. We believe and confess that the Lord Christ has forbidden and set aside to his disciples and followers, all revenge and retaliation, and commanded them to render to no one evil for evil, or cursing for cursing, but to put the sword into the sheath, or as the prophets have predicted, to beat the swords into plowshares. And moreover, that we pray for our enemies, feed and refresh them whenever they are hungry or thirsty, and thus convince them by well-doing and overcome all ignorance. 
This was a confession of the church. Can you imagine if that was a description of the church now? A global description of the church is that the church has forbidden and set aside in, in their followers all revenge and retaliation. If all Christians were known as people who did not avenge themselves and did not retaliate, if all Christians rendered to no one evil for evil, if all Christians rendered to no one cursing for cursing, if all Christians put the sword into the sheath as the prophets predicted or beat their swords into plowshares, can you imagine Christian witness? There was an Amish community in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, some of you remember this, where a gunman took hostages into this one-room Amish schoolhouse. He shot 10 children aged 7 to 13. Five of those children died, and then he committed suicide. Within hours of the shooting, members of the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents, each time expressing sympathy for their loss. Not their loss, for the loss of the killer. Four years later, there was a scholarly investigation into this to try to figure out if this was something that was translatable in culture, uh, transferable, if you will. Here's what they concluded in this research. They argued that our secular society can no longer produce people who can handle suffering without retaliation the way the Amish did. So our society, they concluded, could never emulate this on a large scale because we are a vengeance society, right? Most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. Nourishes revenge and mocks grace. If someone does us wrong and we pardon them, we are looked at as a coward, not as someone who is brave and courageous. So I want to show you, we're about to take a big flight up into the, the, the macro levels of our culture. I want, I want to show you some stuff. So uh, several years back, y'all remember Whoopi Goldberg? Whoopi Goldberg made some very offensive and unnecessary remarks about the Holocaust. All right. She apologized, but was still suspended and punished for her actions. She was a part of what is now considered cancel culture. Y'all ever heard that phrase? Cancel culture. It's part of our culture now. It's a thing. Nathan Hirsch, who's a Jewish writer, talking about that scenario, said he was concerned that the culture's need to cancel even those who were willing to change would not serve to diminish bigotry, but it would actually fuel it. All right, so you got that example. Nine African Americans were killed in Charleston, South Carolina. And relatives of these nine African Americans publicly said to the shooter, his name was Dylan Roof, they said, I forgive you. A Washington Post piece came out after that, and the title of one of the comments said this, Black America should stop forgiving white racists. All right. I'm trying to show you our cultural water we're swimming in. We got several of these. There's a lady named Sabine Birdsong, S-A-B-I-N-E Birdsong. She wrote a blog that was called To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. 
She argued that we, can, we continue to believe forgiveness makes a person superior, and if they can't manage something so simple, the fault lies with them. The author blames this on a deeply ingrained religious hangover from Christianity, a mindset that manifests itself in edicts like forgive and forget or turn the other cheek. We condemn persons who won't forgive, saying they are poisoning themselves, which is tantamount to another Abrahamic culturally ingrained guilt trip. In short, she said, it is victim blaming. Victim blaming is what forgiveness is, she says. Okay? Danielle Barron wrote a New York Times article, I mentioned this last week, called Should, Should We, talking about women, forgive the men who assaulted us? This is where we spent a lot of time last week. Should we forgive the men who assaulted us? A comment on Barron's article charged that forgiveness was an extension of patriarchy, which you remember me talking about last week, and we're going to get into that in a minute. The comment said this, instead of talking about victims who must forgive, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of the criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. All right? This is the cultural water we swim in. Elizabeth Brunig said something that I thought was very necessary. I think Elizabeth writes for either the Atlantic or the New York Times. And she said, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. That demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. So now... Where does this come from? How did this happen? How did we get to a place where we, if someone messes up, say someone uh, recently Kyrie Irving posted something on Twitter that now has the NBA trying to find him for something he posted on Twitter. Not saying, hey, could you correct this? Um, could we see what your intentions were? Whatever, whatever. But he's getting fined. This, this is sort of the big picture water we swim in. If someone screws up, there's no empathizing. There's no conversation. It's cut them off. They screwed up. Cut them off. They screwed up. Cut them off. Label them. Cut them off. Label them. Cut them off. They're bigots. Cut them off. Well, isn't that bigotry? But... This is the, the perpetual thing that we keep passing back and forth in our culture. Unfortunately, the Dordrecht Confession I read earlier is not the way you could describe even a percentage of the church. The way the Amish community responded to ten children being shot, five being killed, is not the way you could talk about any of the church. Most churches I've been into spend more time... Not most churches. A lot of the churches I've been in spend more time trying to work out how we're going to defend ourselves with guns when somebody comes in rather than figuring out how we could address the situation prior to it happening. Do we got a plan on how we can kill them if they come in? Did Jesus? I don't know. I don't think he did. I think he got killed. Surely not, Cody. It's... Forgiveness, mercy is not our, it's not the water we swim in. What we swim in is self-defense, vengeance, retaliation. This is the water we swim in. If someone screws up, you messed up. Not another, we don't, we're not the church of the second chance. We're the church of did you do it? Did you fail? We remember. 
Now, here's this subtle way this thing has crept in our culture. The new sort of sociological phrase is the triumph of the therapeutic or the rise of the therapeutic society. And I want to show you how this works. So modern therapy, do you all know what? Modern just means post the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was uh, where we got sort of the Latin phrase cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. So we were able to define ourselves not based on our interactions with the community, but based on what we wanted to be. Okay? So we're in a thing now called post-modernity or post-structuralism, um, which is unnecessary for me to get into, but I just wanted you to understand that phrase. So modern therapy was designed to defend individuals against any community or outward influence that foisted guilt-producing standards on them. So the only way we'd ever need forgiveness is if guilt was a real thing, right? There's no need to have forgiveness if there's no such thing as guilt. Now, I'm about to show you how some of the leading philosophers, some of the leading psychologists, and some of the leading social scientists who have influenced our culture all have tried to do away with the structures that they call our guilt-inducing structures. They've tried to do away with the feelings of guilt. I was, in a, uh, I was on a mission trip with Christians one time, and the leader of the mission trip looked at me and he said, I don't believe in guilt. I said, you better. He said, I believe guilt is something that the, the culture puts on us to create shame. I said, it ain't, brother. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. If you can't feel bad, you can't feel good. It's our check and balance, this thing that keeps us human. And so if we start searing our conscience when things get guilty, then we can't feel. That's what a seared conscience means, is the inability to feel both good and bad. Guilt is a good thing. Now here's what these folks are saying, where this thing comes from. So with modern therapy, all the emphasis is on the individual extricating him or herself from the bonds of tradition, from the bonds of duty, from an obligation to community in order to pursue, pursue his or her personal aspirations and desires. They would use a phrase like this, you do you. You do you. My, it's in the top three least favorite phrases of my life. So, I referenced last week Friedrich Nietzsche. I've got some folks in the audience who would know Friedrich Nietzsche today because we referenced him last week. How many of y'all familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche? Yes. Yeah, last week nobody, now everybody, right? Here we are. Nietzsche said this, and this was his prediction. He said, as more and more people reject religion and God, the older moral reflexes that those beliefs have created, and in particular the experience of guilt and shame will melt away. The more people reject religion and God, the more that the moral reflexes that those beliefs had created would begin to deteriorate. So if there's no God, there's no guilt, right? If there's no community standards, there's no community shame. Y'all with me? Sigmund Freud, who thankfully we didn't adopt all of his psychoanalysis, but we did adopt a lot of it, uh, Human beings, according to Freud, are crushed under guilt and shame. And guilt and shame are imposed, they're created through what he called interdictions. 
So guilt is not something that our conscience just naturally has, he said. Guilt comes from condemning judgments imposed on people by families, by tribes, by religions, and other oppressive, life-suffocating cultural institutions. Where does guilt come from? Guilt comes from us having a family that puts expectations on us. Guilt comes from us having tribes that put expectations on us. Guilt comes from us having cultures that put expectations on us. So if we can do away with these structures, we can do away with guilt. This is where post-structural philosophy comes in. Let's do away with the structure. We can do away with the oppression. All right? Are see, have y'all seen this function in society? Okay? It's going to start, make, we're about to start seeing clearly like, oh shoot, I see that language everywhere. Karl Marx, y'all remember Marx? A lot of you love his political philosophy. Just a joke. Uh, moral claims, moral claims, according to Marx, are ways that those in power keep their power and keep the class structure that benefits them in place. Now, here's what's true. Oftentimes, when people have power, they want to keep it to themselves. So there are systems designed to keep an oppressed group and a group that is the oppressor. This is, this is a reality. Women have been on the receiving end of this. Slaves have been on the receiving end of this. Uh, the, the biggest uh, sort of, I'd say, common denominator folks who have fallen in this category of being under bondage to this are folks who uh, are poor. So economic status has a lot to do with this, but power nonetheless. So you question all power. If anything is inherited, you got to question it. If it's traditional, you got to question it. It's, it's why the non-denominational church has thrived because the, the non-denominational church says, to heck with tradition. God ain't in tradition. It's worthless. I'm not traditional. God ain't traditional. So this is the residue of post-structural philosophy. Now, it's necessary that we have some of this. It's necessary that we push back against power structures that are oppressive, power structures that try to suppress. But when we start doing away with all taboo, when we start doing away with all parameters, when we start doing away with the very idea of guilt itself, what we start tearing apart is humanity. We don't start creating freedom. We're still up in the clouds. I hope I ain't losing you. If I'm losing you, sleep. We'll come back down shortly and I'll tell you what's going on. All right? Two guys, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, wrote a book called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Y'all tell me if you've seen this happen. So, modern therapy sees individuals as being oppressed and controlled by society's expectations, roles, and structures. Greater honor and moral virtue are assigned to people the more they have been victimized and subjugated by society or others in power. Here's the interesting note. The further down the existing social ladder one is, the greater honor is possible. Ironically, then, we have developed a shame and honor culture of victimhood. People compete for status as victims or as defenders of victims. So the culture that we've created is... Now, we're not trying to be a, a society that has this power and has this status and has this wealth and sort of has what, what's called the bourgeois society. 
we are trying to find out how have we been hurt, how have we been oppressed, and how can we then scream to the man, you've oppressed me, but you ain't got me down no more, man. So whatever, whatever traditional structures were in place, I'm about to start rebelling against them. They used to make me dress up to come to church. Shoot. Shorts for me, dog. I ain't wearing pants again. I don't care how cold it is. So, so this is the pushback, right? Um, the expectation on women, the expectation on children, th these sorts of things, just start throwing away every dogmatic institution or every dogmatic thing that we received from the institutions before us. Everything just gets thrown away. This is where this would come in, okay? It's the inverse of the shame and honor system that was very prevalent in the scriptures, okay? Now, I think, I was talking to Johnny about this last night, I think this one is way more redeemable because we do find Jesus as the victim and on the side of the victims. What we don't find is Jesus parading his wounds as a way to scapegoat the ones who hurt him. As a way to accuse and blame the ones who hurt him. What we find is Jesus as the victim on the side of the victims saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So I think this one is much more redeemable. Now, are you okay if we keep pressing into this a little bit? We still, got, we still got a minute or two. So the chief influences on our, our thought, Western thought. So, the, so the, we're still in the clouds here. The ideological influences on our thought come from Greece and Rome. So a lot of uh, Greek philosophy is what has influenced a lot of what we read in Scripture, um, which would be Plato, Aristotle, those sorts of thinkers. Y'all familiar with Plato and Aristotle? If you don't think you've been discipled by Plato and Aristotle, you have. Amen. Thank God. We'll close with that, right? So, here's what's interesting about these two. In Greek philosophy, there is no prominence at all given to the idea of forgiveness. Aristotle uses the term pardon, but only when someone, this is, this is a big point here, only when someone does a wrong action because of conditions of a sort that overstrain human nature and that no one can endure. I'll break it down a little more clearly here. So for the Greeks, pardon is not forgiving, it is excusing. All right, there's a big difference here. To excuse is not to hold the doer responsible for the action because of extenuating circumstances, even if the action in itself was wrong. To excuse is to tie an action to a fault with which one can sympathize and whose expression is unintentional. So, our thinking has been very influenced by this, this ideology that did not even have the idea of forgiveness in its language. What it did have is pardon. And pardon was one of those things that you just said, you know, I knew, like, it's, it's reasonable that they made this decision. So we can excuse this decision. Because the cardinal virtues in classical thought are things like courage, 
bravery, self-control, not forgiveness. But along comes God in the flesh. And what God in the flesh does is he reveals in his crucifixion two systems of justice. One is the way of the world. One is the righteous, merciful, omniscient way of the Father. And one, Jesus, who has not committed a crime, receives the wrath of an entire community whose power is threatened. He becomes the scapegoat of an entire community, revealing a system of justice that is still, I would argue, the primary system of justice. And at the same time, he reveals this other system of justice where all sin is now exposed onto the naked flesh of the Son of God himself. And rather than saying, you jokers deserve what I'm getting, but I'm taking it anyway. He says, Father, forgive him. Because he could have said the other one. He could have said, I'm taking it, jokers. This is unfair. I ain't done anything wrong. I'm here for y'all. But he doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then tells us, through the voice of this letter that Peter wrote, as Christ suffered, follow his example. When did he suffer? He suffered in the act of revealing those two systems of justice. This is Wendell Berry. He said, peaceableness toward enemies is an idea that will, of course, continue to be denounced as impractical. Right? Let's just, honestly, this doesn't make any sense. It has been too little tried by individuals, much less by nations. It will not readily or easily serve those who are greedy for power. Right? It could not be effectively used for bad ends. It could not be used as the basis of an empire. It does not op afford opportunities for profit. It involves dangers to its practitioners. It requires sacrifice, and yet it seems to me that it is practical. For it offers the only escape from the logic of retribution. It is the only way by which we can cease to look to war for peace. I'm going to read that last line. It is the only way by which we can cease to look to war for peace. When we render evil for evil, we perpetuate evil. We can neither create nor destroy energy. 
I think evil is an energy. So we can't create it. We can't destroy it. When it comes to us, however, we can transform it. And this is the cosmic, thunderous, uh, nature-shaking thing that happens on the cross is all this evil starts just starts piling up in Jesus' body. And evil is used to just getting springboarded back out. And it just hits him all, and he doesn't let it go, and the whole earth shuts down. Literally, this is the story of Scripture. Graves begin to burst open because nature doesn't understand. No, no, no. We have just, violence is retributive. You get it, you give it out. You get it, you give it out. And it just all just starts absorbing into Jesus' body, and he just takes it, and the whole earth stinking explodes. Literally. This is our story. The sky just goes dark. I'm not making this stuff up. This is not a fiction movie. It is impractical, but it's the way of God for God's people. I want us to be a people who forgive as we have been forgiven. And I'll tell you this, we are unable to forgive as forgivers. That's not who we are. We are able to forgive as the forgiven. That's who we are. I'm not the forgiver. I'm the forgiven. Now I'll end with this by C.S. Lewis. He said, I really must digress to tell you a bit of good news. Last week, while at prayer, I suddenly discovered that I had really forgiven someone I've been trying to forgive for over 30 years. Trying and praying that I might, when the thing actually happened, sudden as the longed-for cessation of one's neighbor's radio, I love that line. You can tell he's in the 40s. Sudden, as my neighbor's radio finally shut up, I've been wanting that thing to go off for years. My feeling was, but it's so easy. That was so easy. Now, how many years did he say I've been praying for this? 30 years. Why didn't you do it ages ago? He asked himself. Then he says this, so many things are done easily the moment you can do them at all. But till then, sheerly impossible, like learning to swim. We can pardon, we can pardon because we have been pardoned. When I counsel people, most of the time what I spend time counseling is forgiveness. Most of the time. It's hardly ever anything else. And the exercise I give everyone I've ever counseled is this every day take two and a half minutes and pray this prayer our father who art in heaven on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread 
And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. And what I tell them is this. When you get to that forgive us our trespasses part, say this. Father, forgive me of my sins as I forgive and name them. Every day. Until, just like C.S. Lewis said, God, that was so easy. But I want to forget about it. You can't. Forgive and forget is never something Jesus said. I don't know who said it, but they were dumb. I hope you hear it, sayer of that. Forgive me. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. We'll get into that next week. We weren't called to forgive and forget. We were called to forgive. So may we be the forgiven. And may we follow the example of Jesus Christ. Amen.